When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Jolly Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Barrett. This podcast is for those who are interested in the conversation around diversity, inclusion, and equity. Each week, I'll be interviewing a guest who has something special to share or is actively part of building solutions in this space. Let's get started. This week, I am, it is my pleasure. I am uh, so excited to have Eric Goldman here with me. And so I just like to jump in. You know, I'm one of those people that when I get somebody on the phone, I just want to jump in and hear about your story, how you got to be where you are today. And then maybe we can talk a little bit more about what you're doing, what EOS is doing. And um, really kind of in a DEI uh, con- construct. That sounds great. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to, to have this conversation. Yes. So tell us how you got to be where you are today. Because I know you have kind of a, an, uh, a whole career path in, <laughs> that has brought you to where you are. Yeah, it's, it's been an interesting one, a, a, a wild ride from, uh, you know, early in my career, you know, working for companies like Esprit and Levi Strauss, moving to big corporations like uh, Disney and ESPN, and then uh, going out on my own as a, as a consultant. And that's what I've been doing for the last, gosh, 14 plus years, I guess, just to, to start in my, in my kind of what I call the early years, Um, you know, out of college, uh, I was very idealistic and, you know, wanted to work for the right company that had the right kind of core values and spent quite a bit of time and decided that Esprit was the company that I wanted to work for. They were here in San Francisco and I'm born and raised here. So, they were home and they were doing all kinds of really interesting things. So I started there in the late 80s and not too long after I started, Esprit uh, was doing advertising and running campaigns to raise awareness for HIV AIDS. And this was back in, you know, in the late 80s when that wasn't a very popular thing to do. And it's one of the things I really liked about working there. Spree had no qualms with, you know, forging a new path and talking about things that, you know, for many are taboo. And uh, it was really the ethos of the company. And I enjoyed that quite a bit. And I actually became uh, the person that managed their corporate sponsorship of the AIDS walk in San Francisco. Um, And that was the biggest of the AIDS walks in the US. I think it still is actually. And, you know, we would do slogans. I think the first one we did was, 
don't just talk, walk the walk, something like that. Um, so that was that was a great experience and working with, you know, folks like Wells Fargo and Visa and, you know, a lot of different corporations. Um, but we were kind of the, the creative folks behind it and did a lot of the, a lot of that that work. And it was very meaningful to me personally, just growing up in San Francisco. Um, I remember too, in the, I was there for a while um, into the early nineties and that's when Esprit launched the, what would you do to make the world uh, better? This was like the first real people campaign. This was even before Benetton and we sent out 200,000 questionnaires to customers um, and they all wrote back answering the question, you know, what would I do to make the world a better place? And I'll never forget some of these campaigns. You know, these were like full page spreads in major magazines. And there was even a, a TV campaign, I believe. Um, and I remember some of my, my favorites, uh, Oh, there was one about uh, a woman's right to choose. And what it said on the, the print ad was keep a woman's right to choose unless George Bush is free to babysit. <laughs> 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 you know, and it, you know, there were serious things like give back the land stolen from Native Americans. Um, and I'd, I'd find a cure for AIDS. I couldn't stand losing another friend. So lots of really, really cool work uh, around, uh, you know, corporate responsibility. And I remember, you know, because we had stores and we had shopping shops and the major retailers and we would do all the visuals. And I remember many of the stores wouldn't put up some of the campaign ads because of the content. And we refused to send them a replacement. So we stood our ground. So that was like my ideal, perfect, wonderful, live in the core values at work days. Yeah. Um, from there, I moved to Levi Strauss. And that was, that was kind of me growing up a bit uh, and starting to understand what corporate responsibility was and how that functions as an integral part of an organization. And back then this was uh, mid nineties and Levi Strauss was really forging ahead with uh, corporate responsibility around manufacturing, especially overseas. Um, so trying to, trying to develop a code of conduct uh, and understand and, and really research what was going on there and, you know, what they needed to do, um, you know, to support the folks working in the factory. And it was not an easy task. You know, I remember it was a multi, multi-year project there. And for me, I was uh, there in a marketing capacity launching the Dockers brand. Okay. So, you know, was able to create business casual um, you know, from launching that brand. So that, that was exciting. And so that was like the first 10 years of my career, um, mostly in marketing, some in operations. And one day I got a call from Disney. Um, I can't, I think it was a recruiter that found me. 
I had no, no desire to move down to Los Angeles. I loved San Francisco. I loved Northern California and the Bay Area, but it was a really exciting opportunity to build a sales and marketing team for their consumer products business, which back then was about 3 billion. I think now it's 30, 40 billion. Um, and that's all of the merchandise that you see. It's kind of everything except the entertainment itself. So, you know, it's the toys, the games, the, the clothing, the stuff, the home fashion stuff, consumer electronics. And it was all licensing. So I had an opportunity to work with retailers across the globe. I first started as um, in the U.S. building that team out for sales and marketing. And then it, uh, the model was, worked really well. So then they asked me to um, roll that out globally. So spent about five years there. Uh, working with the teams in the 20 top markets. So, you know, working in Europe and Asia and Australia, uh, South America, Mexico, Canada, and then of course the U.S., but working with each of the teams in those countries and helping them to understand, you know, what sales and marketing was and specifically how to work with retailers. So, you know, I, I worked with the top 100 retailers uh, globally, it was then an $11 billion business, um, and amazing creative, you know, amazing company and a commitment to creative excellence, which I learned that was the big learning part, uh, of my career then was, you know, what that meant when you get to a certain size, you know, how do you make sure that your brand, um, communicates what it needs to and, how to hold on to its essence. Um, I moved after Disney. Um, I then moved to ESPN, which was owned by Disney, um, part of the purchase of ABC when, uh, when I started there and worked on the ESP brand, building out brand extensions in their enterprises group. So, you know, working on franchises like College Game Day, um, and X Games. Nice. Learned a lot. <laughs> I never thought I'd be working on a sports brand. <laughs> but, you know, understanding about the fan was, yeah. was really interesting. And, you know, kind of the fanatical fan at the core of your, you know, your marketing target. And then, you know, working your way out to to more casual fans and, you know, what their, their experiences and how to talk to them and, and bring them products that make their whole fan life experience more exciting. Well, and it's so interesting that you mentioned some of that, because I think a lot of times when people think about specifically about diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, they don't necessarily think about, they just go, oh, you know, that's a new audience or, you know, something like that. But they, they typically don't truly understand how marketing can be used to create such good in the world, you know? Absolutely. Um, and so it's kind of, it's, it's wonderful that you've had this 
you know, experience from the beginning where, you know, authenticity and a focus on the customer is really kind of core to who you are and where, where you've taken your career. Yeah, it, it is. And you bring up a really good point. I, I love the word authenticity because that was something that has been true in all the brands that I've worked on and especially you know, the first 20 years of my career, you know, Spree was dedicated to it. Levi Strauss was dedicated to it. Um, and then Disney and, and ESPN in their own way, you know, is mega corporations. But, you know, as you and I were talking about earlier, you know, now what Disney does with their brands and their entertainment and, you know, their commitment to, you know, talking to different uh, communities and, you know, different populations and understanding, you know, how, how to do that in a way that's truly authentic. Yeah. Um, and I remember because we used to, I used to work on the Pixar products. So we would start seeing the film when it was just black and white sketches and, you know, before it actually moved into, uh, CGI, because we'd be developing products along the way. So we learn about, you know, their travels and, you know, their commitment. They would go into the region. They would spend time with the people. Um, so they, you know, they, they definitely walk invest. the walk. Yeah, they yeah. truly invest in educating not only the world, but themselves, right? Before they even make any film, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, without question. So the the first 20 years of my career, I learned a lot. I learned about, you know, branding, I learned about, you know, how to talk to different audiences, you know, what that means for, you know, diversity, inclusion, um and equity. Um and it, as a sidebar, um I was on the the advisory board for our child's school, um, and I, I led the, the uh, equity, diversity, equity, and inclusion committee there. So I did that for about five years. So very specifically, that was working, you know, in an educational environment. And I remember pushing really hard about, you know, what diversity meant in terms of the student population and the parent population. and you know, everybody can talk about it and say, oh, you know, 30% or 40%. <clears throat> you know, I think at that point, this is a, a Quaker school in San Francisco. It was technically 50% if you count all of the non-Caucasian population. But within that, I mean, you really have to look at different cultures and, you know, what those, what those people need you know, and what it means socioeconomically and what it means in terms of the type of support that they need. So that gave me a lot of insight into how people talk about um, diversity and, and inclusion and equity and what they actually do. And you can tell how committed they are based on, you know, things like outreach, like, what does that mean? And how do you do that? And how is that different, you know, for every different group of people? You know, how do you meet them where they're at? 
and then create a real environment that supports them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely, you know, universities, academia, there's a lot of work needs to be done in that, in that industry for sure. Oh Um, yeah, absolutely. So now we're, we're traveling with you through your career. (laughs) You end up with at EOS, I think is where you came, you are now. Um, and so you're doing consulting specifically for organizations um, and within organizations. Um, so talk a little bit about that and how that process works. Sure. So after I was doing my, my big corporate brand stint, I decided to come home, decided to come back to San Francisco and go out on my own, built a, a small consulting firm. There were, uh, I think, seven, eight of us at one point, um, and basically working on building businesses primarily through brand extension. So building businesses um, within larger organizations. So, you know, if it was an entertainment brand, you know, we might be doing products. If it was a spirits brand, you know, we might be working on some kind of a promotion and then building, you know, product lines out of that. Um, so I, I worked on brands like Cosmo and Popular Mechanics and Sesame Street. Um, I even did some work for a video game brand, Namco Bandai. And the thing that I that I enjoyed the most was that I got to work on all these different brands and across every industry you can imagine. So, you know, from CPG to consumer electronics and manufacturing and and even spent a couple of years working uh, with cannabis brands and cannabis companies. And that was around the time that um, California legalized recreational cannabis. Fascinating, fascinating industry. There isn't an industry like that that's growing as fast and as big as it is. I think so far in the U.S., uh, the industry's created something like 500,000 jobs. And, you know, it's a multi, multi multi-billion dollar industry. But lots and lots of difficulties, especially around taxation and regulation. Yeah. And... uh, one of the things that's that's real troubling about that now is there there you know a dozen really big companies that are buying up licenses and space and you know retail um, around the U.S. operating in each state. They call them multi-state operators, and they've got the they've got the deep pockets so they can afford to take the losses. And a lot of the small folks are are losing out. You know, they're even they're either getting bought up or they're going bankrupt, especially in California. Oh, interesting. So about the time COVID came around, um, I decided that I wanted to focus more on coaching and facilitating, which is my favorite thing to do. I love working with groups and facilitating. I love working with individuals too. And 
what I decided was I wanted to be a solo entrepreneur. I wanted to work um, as a consultant, but I wanted to be a part of something bigger than just me. So during COVID, I spent a lot of time thinking about what that meant and how I could achieve those goals. And someone introduced me to EOS, which stands for the Entrepreneurial Operating System. And essentially, I work on three different things with my clients. The first one is their vision. And that's really about understanding what it is they want and where they want to go. And figuring out and putting into place a system that helps everybody know how they're going to get there and the part that they're going to play in that. The second piece is around traction and and then making progress. So that's really putting a a simple set of tools into place, uh, discipline, and the processes so they they can get there. And that includes everything from you know, running, you know, weekly meetings, there's a structure to it to, um, you know, how they do their hiring and their, uh, their, their people, um, how they recruit, um, operations, measurement, performance, all that kind of stuff. And the third piece of it, which for me is actually one of the more enjoyable pieces is helping them to be a healthy organization and working with the leadership team to make sure that they're healthy and and highly functioning. And at the end of the day, you know, my clients enjoy their work. They enjoy the people they're working with. They feel like they're making a difference. Um, They're getting compensated appropriately and they still have time to enjoy other passions in their life. So that's the success picture. Um, when everybody in the organization has that kind of outlook, it's tough work. It takes a couple of years to get there. Um, but it's, you know, there's no silver bullet, you know, there's no magic in it. Um, and it's, it's not difficult to understand. It just takes a lot of grit and, and commitment to get there. Well, and it's funny because I have found that um, there are folks that have a vision when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, but maybe they don't have traction or they're struggling with leadership or (laughs) they think they have traction, but they really don't because they don't have the right measurements in place or... So, I mean, it's interesting that you talk about it in that way because I think... um, you know, there's a lot of folks out there trying to do DEI work. Um, but like the vision, I think in some cases may be challenging, but you know, it's like getting to the traction yeah. is really challenging as well. Because, um, you know, I think, I think folks struggle with, you know, how do we put the vision in place and do we actually own the vision or are there other components that we have to bring in in order to to connect that vision to get some traction? Um, so I love the fact that you're bringing in that along with leadership help because you know I think a lot of times we look at leadership and you know but they're working to death and maybe they're not really getting the success that they want. So 
Can you, are there tips or tools that you want to pass along that might be helpful? Sure. You bring up a really good point because one of the, the places that we start in building their vision is defining their core values. And everything that we do has those core values at its heart. And there's always a component of that around diversity and around building a more diverse, stronger team, which we all know makes a better team. And even when we, we go through what we call the people analyzer to figure out you know, who embodies those core values, we wind up with folks, even on the leadership team, we call them right people, right seats. So similar to what you were just saying, you know, we'll, we'll have the right people in there, but they might not be in the right seats. Like those aren't their core competencies. And then we'll also have um, the, the right seats, but the wrong people. So you might have somebody in there that's doing an amazing job in their function, but they don't embrace the core values and they're truly undermining what the company's trying to do. People don't want to admit it. You know, they're like, you know what? You know, John's over there. He's doing, he's getting the sales. He's getting the new clients, but he doesn't really embrace our core values. So he's picking away at it you know, day by day by day. And those are really, really hard conversations. And to try and get the leadership team and especially, you know, the chief executive to let that person go because it's about their core values. Um, So we work really hard on that. Um, It's a big, big component of what we do. That's awesome. Um, I literally was talking to somebody yesterday and they were telling me that somebody got let go specifically because of the disconnection to the core values. So I kind of felt good about the fact that I was like, wow, that's that's pretty big improvement Um, for, you know, kind of because I think a lot of times people are let go. You don't necessarily know why, (laughs) Um, but to actually say, you know, they didn't really center around our core values is really kind of creating a different culture at the company. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. So then traction, when you talked about the operating principles and, you know, all of the things, I'm assuming that's where you really see the measurement for and or you know, some people dashboards or whatever in terms of kind of the health of the business. Um, And are there specific ones that you, you focus on for diversity or do what, when you think about the function or organization, is it, you know, kind of similar? Well, one of the things that we build out with, with each client um, that I work with is called a vision traction organizer. Um, So, you know, a lot of companies will build out their vision and core values and business plan. And, you know, there's a 40, 50 page document in a binder sitting on a shelf somewhere that no one sees. And the uh, vision traction organizer that we use is literally two pages. Um, And the first page is 
their vision, their core values, looking at a 10-year picture, where they want to be, what their marketing focus is, their point of difference, getting all the core components uh, of their business on paper. And then the second half of that is all about measurement and goals. So there's a three-year picture, there's a one-year plan, and then the way that we work with the client is on a 90-day cycle. So I get each one of them working in a a 90-day world. And part of that is putting in, putting measurements in place. And even if it's just one thing for somebody, everybody has some type of measurement or KPI. And we call them rocks. Um, it's, It's funny because that comes from the idea that, you know, if you have a pile of rocks and pebbles and sand, you know, the core stuff, things you should be working on, you know, the medium type uh, and then the, the small things, you know, if you fill it up with sand and then pebbles, there's no room for the rocks. But if you right. put the rocks in, the pebbles and the sand are going to find their way in there, but the rocks are going to, you know, fill up that glass the most. So we get them on that 90 day cycle. And, you know, apart from the financial metrics, they're always, you know, people metrics, um, diversity metrics, and um, those flow throughout the whole organization. Yeah. Well, and it's funny you mentioned they flow throughout the whole organization because when you think about, you know, DEI, um, there's a lot of folks uh, that when you talk to them, one of the first things they think about is retention or HR, Mm -hmm. a lot of DEI is sitting in the HR function, but it actually does permeate throughout the organization and making sure that you have diversity metrics throughout the organization, I think can also be somewhat challenging for folks um, to kind of understand how that looks, Um, you know, not just from a, you know, equal pay or uh, you know, diversity met- met- metrics or anything like that, but really to understand how diversity is making the business work and, yeah. you know, the, the positive benefits of showcasing diversity and really tapping into the audience, as you mentioned before, um, a diverse audience um, that I think sometimes, you know, gets left um, left out of the picture. So, so what are some, so what are some other things you can share in terms of, um, you know, how you have been able to take some of those um, organizations and, you know, kind of make them work in a way, because at some point, I'm assuming you have to step away and they are off to kind of manage it on their own. Can you share uh, any success stories in terms of you know, how that process has worked for, for folks? Sure. I, I mentioned before that it's a, it's typically a two-year journey. Some, some do it in less than that. Some, you know, want to keep you on forever. The, our, you know, our goal, my goal, you know, is for them to graduate essentially. So there's a point at time where they're using all the, the different processes and disciplines. They're using all the tools. There's a, a core toolbox of 20 different tools, ranging from things like the people analyzer 
to things like, you know, how to run your, we call them L10s, level 10 meetings, which is a 90 minute meeting every Monday, you know, for every group. Um, But you know how many people hate staff meetings? You know, they don't work. They're not learning anything. You know, there's people politicking. Um, We get all of that handled and get it all out of the way with, with a really simple discipline. So to answer your question, the, the general success story for all of my clients is, you know, they're happy. They, they enjoy working with the people that are there. They like what they're doing because they're in the right job. Um, not only because it's something they do well, it's something that they enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they feel like they're making a difference. Um, they're getting paid appropriately and, you know, they're not working 60 hour weeks. So, you know, they have time to pursue other passions and other goals. You know, one of the, one of the things that we do early on is help companies to discern between, you know, them running the business or the business running them. So typically we'll move them from the business running them you know, they're, they're pushing hard against the ceiling. They're working as much as they can. You know, nobody understands, you know, what I'm trying to get them to do. You know, that's common for the CEO. No one's hitting their metrics. Um, we're growing, but we're not growing profitably. And we help them shift all of those things to a positive place. Um, and they, they start working on, an, you know, a 90-day cycle and, you know, people are seeing progress. Yeah. And that's, you know, we, we heavy up in the, the early part, you know, I'll do five one-day sessions with the leadership team over the course of the first year. And that's mostly about, you know, teaching and facilitating and implementing. And then, we move them on to a 90 day cycle. So then I come back and work with them quarterly to see, you know, what they've done in the past quarter, what's working, what's not. And then how are they going to, what do they need to do over the next 90 days and how are they going to get there? And what are the measurements? And then we get them to an annual, which is a usually two full days. So over the course of the two years, it's essentially um, 10 full day sessions and at the end of that, you know, they're graduating. And, you know, if I've done my job well, uh, they don't need me. Well, and I love the fact that, I mean, you, you have this model that um, I think obviously can work at an organizational level, but to be able to take it to a, you know, a smaller department level um, and really you know, kind of take a more specific focus and really allow that particular department to get the traction they need, the, you know, the vision, the traction and the leadership uh, around that specific function uh, or functional area is, is, is pretty awesome when you think about, you know, kind of how you work with folks, um, you know, utilizing that toolbox. Because I think I think personally, in a lot of cases, you have people that struggle with their career paths. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they don't know exactly where they're going. They know they want to go up at some point. <laughs> um, 
but they don't necessarily know what is the job that I actually want. You know, I mean, I think I started, I was like, hey, I'm going to be the president of Visa for sure. <laughs> um, and then I realized later when I got older, I was like, yeah, I don't want that job. <laughs> but, but I'm so glad that the people that want the job are in the job. <laughs> so, um, and so I think it's interesting because when you talk about the leadership, um, and, you know, even if it's within that departmental function, you know, is it their, you know, passion? Is it their, you know, do they carry that vision, those core values and the traction for even that functional area, yeah. uh, which obviously I would think would flow down from the organization as a whole? Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. And, you know, one of the one of the practices within EOS is. Um, looking at individuals to understand, you know, if they get it, if they want it, and if they have the capacity to do it. Three very, very different things. You know, we all know the get it factor. You know, you know whether that person gets it or not. Then you got to take a, take a look at whether they want it. Is that the job that they want? Are they happy in that position? Or, you know, they get it, they can do it, but, you know, they're just dragging themselves to work every day. And then capacity. So, you know, great person, you know, loves it. You know, they've, they've even, you know, they want it and can do it, but maybe they, just, they don't have the capacity there. So it's really looking at those three different components for, for each person and, you know, whether it's a, uh, you know, sales organization, and you're talking about, you know, your VP or EVP of sales, and, you know, that leadership team, you know, if it's regional, regional VPs and directors, whether you're talking about a marketing team, you can use the same tools and the same process and discipline. Yeah, that's awesome. So then turning this back on to you. Uh, so <laughs> having worked with, you know, kind of in this capacity, are there, are there specific pitfalls or things that, you know, maybe you would even tell your younger self as you were coming through um, when you were kind of managing your own career? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great question. You know, the broad answer is all kinds of stuff. <laughs> you know, I, I think back to I think back to my time at Disney and how much I didn't know and, and to be quite honest, how much opportunity there was all around me. But, you know, I was in my, you know, mid thirties and, you know, I, I knew what I knew and I, you know, I did a good job and I was committed. Um, and I, for the most part, loved what I was doing, but Boy, if I knew what I knew today, uh, back then, I wouldn't be working right now. <laughs> <laughs> We'd all be like just in a state of leisure, right? <laughs> exactly. I'd be at my beach house somewhere. <laughs> you know you have one of those, Eric. <laughs> I, in, on my tenure plan. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Awesome. So um, are there any, uh, any pitfalls you want to highlight in terms of people that are going through, um, you know, kind of this process or is it, 
is it more about engagement? Because I think at one point when we had talked, um, you know, I think you stated some people think they can kind of go through this themselves, but yeah. there is a benefit to actually having someone come in and kind of walk them through the process. That's a great point because you can self-implement. Um, and there are companies that do that and do it successfully. The, the difficult part, and I think the best way to think about it is, you know, most of the times the reason you bring in a consultant is because they're coming from the outside. They have a different perspective. They can see the things that you don't. And they're not running your business on a day to day. So self-implementing is hard because you've got people that are already doing their job. And now you're asking them to think about running the business in a different way. So that's one of the benefits of working with an implementer. Is, and, you know, seeing, and seeing their own blind spots, which, yes. <laughs> which is challenging. Yeah. One of my favorite things to do is when, when facilitating, you know, any part of the, the EOS process is you'd be surprised how much people know, but they don't know that they know. So a big part of that is, you know, working with them, using different tools, you know, different evaluations, different assessments, you know, different kinds of conversations, team building, you name it. But is getting to that point where people can get really, really honest and, you know, talk about how things are working for them, how they're feeling about things. And it's such an amazing thing to, to see people open up and then to hear them talking to one another saying, oh my God, I had no idea you felt that way. Or I had no idea you were struggling with that. You know, how can I help? And, you know, you wind up with these teams that, you know, go from dreading their job or feeling like they're, you know, they're just working so hard and they're burning out to, you know, how can I help you? You know, how can we make this happen together? And just a real sense of camaraderie that, awesome. you know, you get rid of a lot of the politics and, you know, people are just real honest with each other. And, you know, it's okay to say, you know, hey, this is my career path. You know, I want to be in this job for another year, maybe two. But, you know, my expectation is to move into this or to move up, as you had mentioned. And it's it's okay to have those kinds of um, aspirations and be able to talk to your peers about it. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, in, in a way, then, you're actually creating safe spaces for people to have those conversations that typically they wouldn't have before, which is, which is great. I mean, because I think a lot of times that's what we miss, right? It's like we think we're doing the right thing, but somebody is silently over there suffering. When I work with teams, one of, one of the things we, we do that, you know, gets real very, very quickly is um, each person. Um, so let's say there's, there's, six people on the leadership team, CEO, and then, you know, five VPs, we'll call them. So let's say that the, the, we're, we're all looking at the CEO. So the five people, um, they pick one thing that they want the CEO to continue doing. 
and they pick one thing they want them to either start doing or stop doing. And then you go around. So each person gets that review from five other people. And each person, when they do it, you know, I, I coach them. You have to look at the other person. You have to ask for their permission to give them this kind of feedback. But it gets real really fast. And after we go through that exercise, we do another exercise just around feelings, you know, and people in a, in a recent uh, group, a, a company that I was working with, I mean, people were saying things like, you know, I'm really anxious or, you know, I'm feeling really sad or disconnected. And people are able to start talking about how they feel. And it's amazing when people start doing that and opening up and other people are able to receive that it's it's transformative you know and that's when i uh get most excited about the work that i do yeah it's like getting the the layers below why we're actually in business and doing things yep. for this company in the first place you know which is awesome that's awesome i love it Wonderful, wonderful stuff. So, so then with, um, I mean, I know you said you kind of launched this in the height of the pandemic. <laughs> um, cause I imagine there's, you know, I mean, I would say I'm probably part of the great resignation. Um, but <laughs> are there, are there things, um, that you see even in terms of the pipeline of people? I think I know there are lots of folks that are struggling to like bring people in and, and kind of keep them and, and kind of focus on leadership and, yep. you know, having the right people in the right position. Yep. Um, anything, any tips or tools you can give us there or. Yeah. One, you know, one of the things that I encounter sometimes is, you know, I'll be talking to a potential client and they'll say, Oh, you know, we can't start this because we've got, you know, two critical positions that are open, you know, and we're just having a, you know, a hell of a time filling them. You know, we've talked to all these people and, you know, they're just not a good fit or they just don't have the capacity. And one of the things that I tell them is, you know, wouldn't you like to be recruiting those people with a really good understanding of your vision and how you're going to get there? And, you know, the kind of discipline and processes you have in place to do that and your core values. And oftentimes they don't think about it that way. You know, let's get the people that are there on board and then be really clear about, you know, who you want to bring on. Makes the hiring process a whole lot easier, much, much less laborious, because it's pretty easy to find in, you know, in the first five minutes of talking to somebody, whether they're going to be a good fit based on your core values. Yeah. I love that. That's awesome. Oh my gosh, Eric, I could go on and on and <laughs> on. <laughs> Thank you so much for, sure. for uh, joining the Jolly podcast. I um, We should probably help people know how to reach you mm -hmm. um, if they're interested in getting more information or connecting with you directly. Yes, yes, please. Um, so there, there's two ways. Uh, you can uh, give me a call. Um, do you want me to tell people what my number is? is that, yeah, are you yeah, gonna, 
So it's it's 415-845-7475. Call me anytime. 415-845-7475. Or you can send me an email uh, to eric.goldman at EOS Worldwide. Right. Either way, I will get back to you. And one of the things that I will do um, with any of your listeners is I will do a free 90-minute meeting uh, consultation just to see if it's a good fit. You know, if you're a good fit for EOS, if EOS is a good fit for you, if I'm a good fit for your organization or not. And if I'm not, there are over 400 folks worldwide that are doing what I do, that are implementing EOS, and I will put you in touch with somebody else that maybe is a better fit. Awesome. Well, I can't imagine someone being a better fit. So (laughs) you're too kind. (laughs) You bring such a wealth of information with you, and um, I'm always so appreciative of your perspective. Um, We have connected on many different levels along the way, so I appreciate you and your support, and I look forward to continuing these conversations. I'd love to come back. Just let me know. All right. Sounds like a plan. Thanks, Take care. Bye, Melissa. Thanks for joining me on the Jolly Podcast. Please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. See you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.